listening to Paper Cuts. So, Iman, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me um, in your studio mm -hmm. here at Carnegie Mellon University. And to just kind of like set the scene here for our audience, we are sitting at your work table mm -hmm. with a lot of fake objects and paper objects. What, what, do, we, what do we have here? Well, to, to your right is a like a Costco pickle jar. I have, I have this recent interest in, I call it a pickle jar practice, where I'm just trying to make a ton <laughs> of tiny paper sculptures of things often unconsidered, uh, littered upon the ground, not thought of, um, but accumulate enough of them to fill these like super big pickle jars, which the I should back up with the pickle jars in that like my partner loves pickles. And so I buy them at Costco <laughs> to save money. And then I have these like huge jars. I'm like, that's the size of an ambitious collection of like hundreds of these tiny paper sculptures. So right now there is a, a half filled pickle jar of like fake paper pencil shavings. And then behind you, there's other ongoing pickle jars of like lucky pennies which the pennies in that jar are actually like famous pennies. So they're reproductions oh. of, of incredibly expensive pennies, should you ever be so lucky to find them. Um, and then there's also a jar of fake paper screws, which my, my big plug in that is that I always wanna have a solo show where all of the other artwork comes down and then I stick paper screws in all the holes. Yeah. And that would be like my, my show. Um, so I have like a couple hundred paper screws. So that's on one side. Um, there's a lot of other weird sculptures around. I'll, the newest thing would be on, Chris, will be on your left, which is like a paper soy sauce container, <laughs> like a soy sauce packet, those free soy sauce packets that you get at, at grocery stores. So I guess I think I'm interested in all that extra stuff that's like worth nothing that, yeah. you know, that Obviously, are just like, free. Yeah. I also want to point out just how well crafted all these are. So the all the pencil shavings look exactly like they like color pencil shavings with different colors around the edges. The soy sauce, which you meticulously printed, um, <laughs> looks incredible like a soy sauce packet. Um, the screws are the one outlier where they're like white arches paper mm -hmm. and not like the the color of what a screw would be mm -hmm. but it's for it's like an art screw so yeah. it's like <laughs> it's for an all white white cube space yeah yeah so <laughs> that felt like like important like when you forget a screw and then you just paint it white because you're like i don't want to see it anymore yeah yeah just roll right over it yeah <laughs> um because you are like the, the printmaking factory member here um and some of the conversation is going to be about printing as well. And so we have these objects as entry points. Can you tell us how you actually printed the soy sauce and duck sauce mm -hmm. pieces? Yeah, so I definitely come into art making from more of a printmaking, print on paper, sort of traditional printing technical background, Yeah. Um, not from a sculptural background. So even though I've been making almost, almost exclusively like sculptures, installation work, they all have this beginning impulse, which is like ink on paper, um, which of course goes back further in a social history thing of just like the way objects exist in our world. They're, they exist yeah. as multiples made to make more of something or made to exist as multiple things. Um, if you look at it sort of like conceptually, I just like, I, I 
the soy sauce container, the soy sauce packets were always prints. That's how they exist in the world. They were likely a screen print on rolls of plastic and then filled filled with sauce and then yeah. like mechanized to be like cut and trimmed. So it's like all of that, if you, that's like way, uh, the way print exists in an industrial world. And then also the same tools are how we make like fine, fine art prints. And I'm like air quoting. Yeah. Air quoting right now, like a fine <laughs> art print. So anyway, so it's like when I look, when I get like really excited about like money or a lucky penny or something, I'm thinking about like dyes and engraving and like, and screen printing. It's like the best part about the soy sauce things is like, they're not always printed that well. Like they're, they often have like misregistrations or like a double, double print or they're like trimmed kind of crooked and like yeah. that. They're just not like, cause it's about speed. So anyways, like I, I would just like back up. It's like, that's how we make soy sauce, free soy sauce packets. That being said, these, um, the, how these were made is that I actually like scanned and redrew every like letter in illustrator um, of all of the packets that I can find. And sometimes it's like, oh, like from my own food. And then I just started like Googling and trying to, I'm trying to build up like a lot of different packets. I am, yeah. I'm drawn to the ones that feel really like printerly, like a two color print with the sauce showing. Yeah. I'm not interested in like a full color condiment packet. <laughs> um, so I redrew the whole thing in illustrator. They're all screen printed. And so I did a bunch of tests on screen printing on different kinds of paper with different levels of transparency and how I could make mm. paper be as transparent as possible. Um, I, I think because I, I have such a larger practice where it's always these paper sculptures that it felt really like I wanted to see if I could retain the, the paper sculpture quality of these. And because yeah. once you print onto plastic, then it's like literally just how those packets are made. Yeah, and so where like is that? Translation of material. Yeah, or... yeah. So this is printed on actually like a thin, um, like Kozo um, Japanese calligraphy kind of paper that's then covered with paraffin wax to make it transparent. Yeah. And there's a little like loop of paper inside to make it feel like there's sauce inside. All right, yeah, I was wondering about that because like physically it feels very much like Saucy. it has volume yeah. or something inside of this. Yeah. And you... uh, yeah. And you were talking a little bit about your, your paper sculptures. So when we when we first met in California, we were both in on the West Coast for mm -hmm. some time. Um, I first knew of your work from the paper sculptures that you were making. Uh, when did you start doing things like creating the paper screws or the paper like iPhone mm -hmm. uh, chargers or the paper radiators and things like this? Yeah, so the I can tell you the exact month. Yeah. would be October of 2011. <laughs> and I know that because I was doing this artist residency at Blue Mountain Center, which um, is in the Adirondacks. And there's no, one of the beautiful things about that residency is that there's like no internet. Um, there's wow. like an internet station, but otherwise there's no cell phone reception or internet. And I was in this studio that was in a boathouse and it was at the very end of autumn at a time when I was like living in California for like a decade with no seasons and then I was like deep it was like deep autumn in upstate New York in a boathouse with no internet and so I was trying to make work and I was like looking around you know there's like no print studio or whatever it was just like this raw space and one thing that was there was that they had all of these like external conduits and electricity that was like wired into this space to make it like a usable workable space yeah. um, a place that you can get work done 
Um, the residency brought together a lot of artists who are um, and activists and writers who are all interested in making work talking about immigration reform and sort of nationalism. Um, and at the time, this sort of like the very early, like this now feels like a naive period yeah. of sort of anti-immigrant fervor that was bubbling up in this country. And it's, I, I like laugh when I think about how urgent and how angry and how desperate things felt in 2011 and how it is yeah. like nothing compared to what it was now. So one of the things that we're talking about a lot was like um, papers, like citizenship papers and thinking about how like paper, something as arbitrary as like having the right kind of paper allows for certain people to be like legal or seen as a, a human being in this country. So yeah. one thing that was happening was there was this big um, bill being passed in Alabama that was, um, I think, I'm not going to say the actual bill because I'm scared I'll screw up the numbers, but it was one of the largest, the toughest immigration bills, which denied people with the wrong kinds of paper, paper, paperwork, citizenship papers. The, the landlord did not have to provide electricity or water. Oh, no. um, and those are basic, like, sort of human needs at this point to yeah. live. Um, and so somewhere in that, I started somewhere through those conversations and being in this space, I started to make just these simple paper replicas of the conduits in the space and really yeah. thinking about how, like, there are these little objects in a room that we don't even consider, but that we need. Um, and how they take up space or how they they play a bigger part of an infrastructure than we think. Yeah. And then that ballooned towards this idea of like art spaces. So I made my like little white screw joke, but in that idea that like art artists, um, art does this thing where they can take like a useless space and paint it white and cover all the other screws and bolts and things in it. And it's a, this cool raw art space and it's the yeah. highest level of sort of like cultural consumption. Um, and that like white cubing white and essentially like whitewashing the spaces and things. So then, so that, that, that work directly translated, started moving into these big installations of like all of these different sort of conduits that like are hidden because they're sort of painted away. And like, we're right now in my art studio. And if you look directly above us, you would see like this incredible network of all white painted, like piping and, yeah. um, electricity and HVACs and all of these other things that like normally might get hidden by like a false roof, but are not. And th those are like the things that make us like a space usable. Anyway, so I started making, that's like the, that's the origin story of the paper sculptures. So it all started with all of these like outlets and conduits. Yeah. Um, and eventually it sort of moved to any, all, there's still an interest in infrastructural things. There's still an interest in small things that are forgotten. Mm -hmm. You know, like phone jacks. Yeah. I have like a, a lot of phone jacks. I recently made like a pencil sharpener, which is a sculpture for your grandma's basement. You know, it's <laughs> like that, that there's a type of house where everyone has a pencil sharpener in the basement or the kitchen or just these like little vestigial parts of how people lived that yeah. we'd be just don't use anymore and so they either like stay because they're not used and then now as paper sculptures they're kind of like loved because someone like made them out of hand yeah. by hand and then they are like these precious things so it's like i like the the line between like unconsidered and useful and then like useless but like very considered
Yeah, very considerate and very like cared for as well. It's just so interesting to see a shelf full of a paper uh, pencil sharpener and toilet paper roll and some of the like power knobby conduit thing. They don't actually know what it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> knowing that they're all made out of paper really does transform how they're presenting on the shelf mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing all of your your storage system behind you, like these clear Tupperware containers filled with these objects you've produced. And you're saying that you have, like you have a history in, in printmaking and that's where a lot of your practice is rooted in producing multiples. Um, I guess one is why is it important for you to be creating multiples of these paper sculptures and also what brought you into printmaking? So mm -hmm. two part question. Two part question. Yeah. Okay, I think the first part about printmaking uh, they're almost like the sort of the same answer, right? Yeah. Like um, when I saw early like Chinese woodcuts from sort of the modern Chinese woodcut movement or other woodcuts related to sort of social, social justice or sort of revolutionary work and the power of that like graphic image or the way that that prints played a big role in visual literacy and communicating like urgent ideas across like large groups of people. Um, and just graphics, right? Like yeah. ads and graphic, like all of that was like the first time where I thought I really wanted to be an artist. Um, so like that's the, it's truly kind of like the origin story of like this is like a visual language mm -hmm. and like a larger like history and function of this kind of visual language that got me like excited about art making and all the possibilities of art making. I, I know think how. Like for you, how how old were you, or where where were you when I, you? I I would say two thousand. This is like I'm I'm making myself seem like I like can really remember like dates and stuff. <laughs> I, I'm not, but it, I it would probably be around two thousand and four. Yeah, yeah. December December November of two thousand and four. So you would have been like in college at this point. Yeah, and I yeah. know that because I was an art history major and I got to travel and do a research project in China. And when I was in China is when I saw these like early like woodcut prints from this sort of bigger uh, political movement. And I kind of came back and was like, I want to be an artist and not an art historian. Yeah. So it's like another like seminal moment of like, yep, it was That's like, amazing. I can like root it down to like one or two sort of prints. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's always been that. And then I'm always, I guess I'm just the most interested in like objects that have, that are always part of multiple things that you know everything that is reproduced is something that's part of like a th like thousands of other exact versions of it in the world there's something sort of special about it. so it's like some of the things behind me like I, I have this installation which is about 250 like iPhone chargers yeah and outlets it's like there's they're every they're everywhere and they're these also these things that like um that we like like that like hide in our rooms and that everyone has like this like tangle of cords that exist there and then like we need it yeah and um, we carry it around with us yeah so it's just like i'm just i'm i'm drawn to like the mass-produced thing yeah you know yeah especially those like those iphone uh cords are so ubiquitous and so uh necessary yeah seemingly or just then thinking about in that piece it's like it gets reduced. They are sort of simplified. They're very detailed, but they're they are still simplified. And in mass, they are about like shadow and, and line and the way all yeah. of those cords tangle and how 
an everyday object in mass sort of is abstracted. And so there's a lot of, I, there are a lot of sort of formal qualities of everyday mass produced things yeah. um, that I'm drawn to in, in, in the same way of like the jar of the pencil shavings. They're like almost like idealized shavings. They're like shavings yeah. in a world where it, they don't break. The like platonic ideal of pencil shavings. Yeah. 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 But then they're, they're very like, um, they're like a, a special handful of pencil shavings. Like, yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but I'm just like, I love like holding them. And, it's a really satisfying feeling to yeah. put your hand into that pickle jar yeah. and pull just, out like a, a soft fistful of yeah. uh, pencil shavings. Yeah. There's a childhood, like there's a, this like um, childhood I impulse or this, I like the paper because it's like, everything kind of you can make anything out of paper and yeah. like it's also just it's it's like a substrate that is almost like nothing you know but all ideas sort of begin somewhere on paper even if it's like a digital like version of paper like a google doc that has like an edge to it because it still ultimately has this intention of being printed yeah. and it's like it's what like little kids make whatever they want out of paper you know, you draw on paper to make the pictures you want. You can build things out of paper to make the things you want. Like, so there is something like, there is that childhood sort of impact of it. Or that like, it's not worth anything unless like the labor of the human like obsession to make it, makes it into something special. Um, so I like, I like that, that blank slate of it. Yeah. yeah. And another object that's here on the table that you've spent a lot of time on like more recently was uh, paper, the film paper. strip center. Yeah, yeah the, the paper book that you produced at the Women's Studio Workshop. Um, so this is like, would you say this is the most recent work that you've produced? Yeah, the, well, so it's, the work is called Paper, Paper, Film. And it is, it is really recent, but it's been like over a year and a half in the like scheming. Yeah. <laughs> and and maybe it's one of the larger ambitious like published works in that like um the women's studio workshop in Rosendale, New York, like has supported the the much much more elaborate like production of an edition of fifty two of these objects. Um and really quickly, uh can you give us uh a little bit of a elevator pitches like what is the women's studio workshop yeah, yeah yeah so the women's studio workshop is this amazing sort of art organization it has been around i think almost 50 years i want to say they started around the 70s yeah um there was i want to say maybe four or five women who started it and they've still like most of them are still quite active with the organization um in the facilities they have like they support ceramics um a big paper making studio, a big print studio. There's a dark room. They do residencies. They have residencies for mothers. Um, um, they And then they publish art books. And they've been publishing artist books for decades. And yeah, their artist books are incredible. They're amazing. Um, yeah. And they have, um, you know, staff there that are sort of incredible at making handmade paper and working directly with artists and doing all of sort of the binding. They definitely make beautiful sort of entirely handmade artist books um and then they have like a summer institute where they do classes they do a ton of things there yeah. and they're sort of continuing to thrive almost you know it's got to be at least 50 years coming yeah. on 50 years um yes yeah, this is incredible history yeah incredible history so it's amazing to be sort of in that lineage 
right? Of, of decades and decades of women supporting other like female artists making yeah. um, print paper artist books. Yeah. And the object that you were producing, you said that you came upon this here at Carnegie Mellon whenever you started this position. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the book that I proposed making at the Women's Studio Workshop is actually a sculpture um, in an edition of 52, and it's called Paper, Paper, Film. And what it is is it's a box set of educational film strips and accompanying audio um, of the papermaking process and of gravier printing, so like commercial printing. It's basically an educational film on printing. Um, and I found it in the storage closet of Carnegie Mellon University, which is where I teach, um, early on when I started teaching there. And it, it, it was never been used. So I want to like back up on the little like history of this film. Yeah. So the film strip was published in 1983. And then it was, okay. um, which we laugh because that was the year that I was born. So it's like the exact same ages. Like this object will always be the same age as me. Um, and then it was purchased by the university in 1987 for almost $50 of film. And I know that because there's a perfectly folded receipt within the, the <laughs> box and that the films were like fully rewound. I'm oh, sorry, the audio cassettes were fully rewound and the films were like tightly wound. Like I know I could just feel like this thing had never been used. Yeah. They just bought it for $100 in 1987, like shoved <laughs> it into a closet. And they're all encased in this like funny aged foam. And it's all in this like box set that has this like gold foil very like early 80s <laughs> graphic design like package um so the minute I found it I like I had very much this impulse to make it um one of the very many sort of paper sculptures that I make copies of um and I was lucky enough to have the women's studio workshop sort of support publishing the book and the biggest thing that they that developed that change is like we um so every okay so every part of the box is completely handmade um it involves making a copy of the box, which is like the weirdest part because it's just a copy of a paper box. Um, but that involves um, getting a co copper plate, like copper um, hot foil, silver foil stamping, um, color plan vermilion paper, which was actually embossed in England to have like a faux leather finish because yeah. the actual box had this like funny leather, fake like leather. So we have like faux leather embossed paper that was silver foiled, um, handmade into the boxes. Um, I worked with Chris Patrone, who's um, a long-term um, staff person at Women's Studio Workshop, who's amazing at sort of developing artists like handmade papers. And she helped make this um, cotton paper that was dyed the exact color of the old foam. That foam also has like glitter embedded in it to make it look like glittery foam, which oh, is like man. I'm very anti-glitter in the yeah, print shop. That I like made me cringe. Yeah, I know I broke. That, that like wave of horror. It's like it's really bad, but we went for it. Um, that paper foam was then I developed or designed a letterpress die that punches the foam out to the template pattern to fold the paper foam. Okay. So then that was letter pressed. Um, there are two cassettes and two film canisters, which were all cut and assembled by hand. And to give you an idea of like the level of insanity with the cassettes, each cassette took about 50, it takes 57 separate pieces of paper to make. Um, oh. And we made 
120 of them. They were, there was an awesome group of interns at WSW that sort of worked like 13 hour, well, I worked 13 hour days. They were there like solid eight hour days, like building yeah. all of these handmade cassettes. Um, and then finally there is, oh no, not finally. There's also like a replica of the like dot matrix old receipt which actually had to be like hand perforated and hole punched to make it like look like the kind of things that you like tear off. Yeah. And then finally there is an artist book. <laughs> and the artist book has like a letterpress printed cover and it is a direct uh, translation of the film on paper making. <sighs> and you were saying the, uh, the workshop also had to purchase a projector. Yeah. So that those the original film to be screened and then photocopied. Yeah, so, right. So the funny thing, the funny thing is, is when I saw this film, when I found the box, I just like was like, this would be a beautiful paper sculpture. And I had like made zero efforts to like look at the film or listen to the audio. I was like, I know how this is, you know, like I could go on YouTube and like look up this paper making process. Like I know how paper is made and I just like didn't have that impulse. Um, and the director of Women's Studio Workshop was like, we have to see what is, like, we have to listen to the audio tape. We have to see what's on this thing. So then, then like, three or four boom boxes from the staff and, like, the founders, like, garages were dra- dragged into this print studio. And none of them would play the cassettes anymore. At one point, oh, wow. they had to go out and buy, like, 8D batteries to, like, <laughs> power these boom boxes because nobody had the, like, cord anymore. Um, so we, we, they spent like a ton of money on batteries. We couldn't get the tapes to play. We finally found a boom box that could play the tapes, but they were worried that they were going to eat the tape. So they recorded it digitally onto an iPhone. Yeah. Like they played it once recorded digitally and an intern used the digital audio to like transcribe the audio. And then we wanted to see the images on the film strips. And they tried to scan it and use like augment a film strip carousel on a flatbed scanner to scan the images, but it wouldn't it wouldn't work because they didn't have the appropriate one for a film strip. And they tried to like jerry rig one and make one, and that took like many days. And so finally, they went on eBay and bought a film strip projector, and the films were projected on the wall. And uh, an intern with a tripod and a DSLR camera took photos of the projections and, f- and color corrected them. And so those images are in the book. And I will say this is going to be like a teaser thing, but the last thing that I'll say is that I'm in the process of making like a paper copy of the film projector. Oh, wow. So that now I'll have a paper film projector. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure where that will go, but I know it'll be returned. I know one copy will be given to a women's studio workshop as a gift. So that, that's a big part of this practice. My practice is like there's a little bit of a poaching of objects or from personal archives or other places, but there's always this this exchange or this weird gift back. So you will you will soon see a paper film projector. That's amazing. Well, it's like uh, an exchange or like having these objects are so or these paper sculptures are so rooted into the history of objects. It's mm-hmm. this really wonderful way to have a practice that extends backwards in time while creating some transformative element to the work that allows it to be legible to us right now. Yeah. Right? Like this, you, there's so many more things that you need in order to see what the original 
film and audio is. We've also just made it legible to anyone who picks up your sculpture. Yeah. And then you can just think about that, that uh, like it's pres it, the, that object, these cassettes and films are preserved in a totally different way. Yeah. Um, just as sort of art objects, catalysts of sort of thinking, archived things to preserve and to think about sort of their objectness. Because frankly, all of that information now can be sort of digitally, virtually accessible mm -hmm. at any any moment. Yeah, like you said, you could just look it up on YouTube. You just look it up. Yeah. <laughs> you can find like, and I know because I'm, I like am a late night factory video watcher, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, that there's endless, uh, endless educational films on paper and printing out there. Yeah. Not very many paper copies. <laughs> well, I do also love that you found this original object in the supply closet at Carnegie Mellon University. And now they're going to be collecting your replica of it in the special collections. And right. it will be like archived and cared for, not just here, but also at any other institution that purchases it from, uh, from the workshop. Yeah, I really like this. I, I like to think about the history of like paper and printing as this technology that transformed the world and sort of yeah. connected people and cultures across the world. Um, it was a huge technological, you know, and it was a huge part of like the human need to like record things like because the contributions of paper and print are like undeniable, yeah. you know, but then and then somewhere along the line, there's this kind of false idea that like paper is vulnerable, that it won't stand the test of time, that we need different kinds of new technology to preserve things. And then you have like all the microfilms and yeah. You know, all these other sort of camera-based, lens-based ways, you know, of preserving things that were on paper. Um, and those also had this expiration date, right? Because they're yeah. like celluloid films are breaking down or they're emitting toxic things. Or they can catch fire. Yeah. Especially they Yeah, they can yeah. catch fire or they're... The technology of the digit of the sorry the lens based capture was not very good, so they're they're really low resolution. Yeah. Or there's human error in trying to like duplicate all of these things that were printed, um, and things are different. And so the film is of that era. The film, the paper, sorry, not the paper film. The film on paper is of that period of like new technology ways of educating people about paper printing. Yeah. Right, like early '80s sort of roll the film strip thing into the classroom and like have this uh, visual and audio experience of a thing that's done by hand um, and now things are really different I think I think now with virtual and the digital and the cloud yeah there is now a different level of um, archiving or accessibility that has like really changed the game a little bit about like the reach of, reach of paper you oh, know yeah, absolutely. um and so it's the appropriate time, I think, to like <laughs> capture, you know, the film strip. Yeah. Because the film strip is like a blip, like a blip mistake, weird thing that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, you know? it's lifespan is very short compared to paper. Yeah. And I, it's a different experience to hold. So it's like, I like the idea that like students or researchers can go into a library still and, and hold books or see like first source imagery or, or like... Yeah actually be able to hold like a cassette entirely made out of paper you know it's a slower different weird funny completely like almost useless in a good way like 
way to remember this object, yeah. which are otherwise being like thrown out quite quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's an incredibly uh, smart project. I absolutely love it. And it's also just interesting to think about this as an object that's meant to teach and educate people, yeah. um, which is another way to kind of get into the idea of you as an educator as well as an artist here at Carnegie Mellon. Mm -hmm. And how do you, like, how do you see your role as an educator as part of your larger practice, or is it something separate? I think it's definitely part of the practice. Yeah. I definitely think um, the merging of both like life and art, daily routines or like everyday things are, are just as important in to be made into an art object is something like I do try to emphasize with the students that like yeah. every part of their life or every like small thing that might not seem very interesting or unconsidered has the potential of being a magical <laughs> um, impulse for art making, you know? So it's like, yeah. for me, I feel like if you can unleash that part of yourself that like sees that magic in the world or that inspiration in the world, then like, or, or can see that something just like as commonplace and simple as sort of paper has like that endless potential of like making whatever you want or being treated as like something just as precious or as valuable as a one of a kind thing then like then then like it's like a key to unlock life a little like I yeah. I hope that I think the best part about an art education is um to make like life that interesting or worth living or like if everyone had that ability to see the world that way a little bit in that way um yeah whatever job they have whatever material they have whatever thing that is almost worth nothing from their childhood that they still like that's something you know yeah so i i think that it's really related that's the part i get the most excited about the value of an art education so yeah. somewhere i want i want to like empower people to think like everyone has the a story that's interesting or an ability to make something from anything. Yeah. Does no, that I, make sense? <laughs> it, it does. I, I, just, I really love how you put that. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it, you are, it's coming at it from a way where you're interested in allowing students uh, a framework to reinterpret what they're doing or just like view their life in a different way. Yeah. That can be a little bit more, uh, or less compartmentalized. Yeah, and it's just as important as it is to like think huge and 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 tackle like these big things in the world. I think there's like just as much. It's these like micro sort of changes, these like little, you know, reverberations that can that can if anything change an individual experience of like life or a job or working or making yeah. or creating things that I feel are just as like important, you know? Just, yeah. it's a, it was like a big sort of philosophical change in my own art practice from sort of, you know, being excited about prints that were trying to resonate with a, the largest group of people that were asking for like huge cultural revolutionary shifts and changes to then making like, um, weird tiny replicas of like useless things but there, there's like good there's like a, a joy in that or like I in my in my artist talk I try to think about like what is the smallest thing that you can make that can change a space or change a day or change yeah. like as a gift right like as a this weird gesture of 
And and somewhere in that, if there was like a lot more of that, then so, it does change the world in some way. No, absolutely. Like you just got a weird paper soy sauce. Yeah. Sculpture. <laughs> like that's never happened. No, it's it's. And now it has. Truly magical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it'll and you'll like um, of all of these other random objects in the room, there's that one that you know you're just a little more careful around. So it's like. Somewhere in this practice, it's felt like just being a little bit more careful around something because you don't know maybe how it was made. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so you were teaching as well before you came to Carnegie Mellon. Um, was being part of an education system or being part of academia something that you've been interested in for a while? Or is mm -hmm. it more like, I, I think within uh, the art world, sometimes this track of academia is kind of one of the only things that is put forth as a track where you can be making work and also making a living Yeah. to incorporate like all the work you're doing into artwork. Um, so this is like falling off the rails of even the question, but like yeah. <laughs> when did, when did you come to academia as something you actually wanted to be yeah. part of? Um, I also know that I love these questions because I know like the exact answers. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, it was like the the minute that I wanted to be an artist. I knew okay, I so it's like really late. Yeah, yeah, because I seminal moment absolutely. Yeah, like I always, um, I did not like I didn't go into school to go to art school. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really study any art in high school or anything like that. I come from like scientists backgrounds and I was very much into music, which is a huge part of how I am the way that I am. But I like actually like played, I played the French horn. There's a weird yeah. trivia. I'm in trivia pub thing. Um, <laughs> and it was not until I felt like I was at a university level that I felt like the kind of art classes I actually wanted. Like, I was really resistant when I was younger to this, like, idea of, like, a watered-down art education or, like, the, like, it's camp or everyone can, like, smash colors together. Or, like, I wanted the rigor of, like, three-hour-long, quiet, serious drawing classes. Like, yeah. I was waiting for those, like, art history classes where it was, like, root memorization and the connecting of, like, visual images and the history of the world. Like, I, it was, I, I like, that's the art I wanted. I wanted to study it, like, seriously. So the minute I kind of found real art classes, and then I just knew that I wanted to teach. And I, I've always yeah. felt comfortable with teaching, but I, I knew, like, I just, like, knew I would be, a, like, a art teacher. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I, and then, um, but I didn't, like, go and pursue that right away. I, I you know, got my MFA, um, and then just worked as an artist and did all sorts of different jobs and, and until sort of the teaching kind of came together. But it was like, yeah. it, it was never out of like, it's, it's, it's funny because it was sort of like, I just knew that it would happen and that I would. Yeah. So I didn't, like, I didn't rush it. <laughs> I just, yeah. And where did you do your MFA at? I got my MFA at California College of the Arts in San okay. Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's the some of the California connection, but yeah. Did you go out to California for grad school? That? Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And where were you at beforehand? I did my undergrad at University of Wisconsin, Madison, okay. which happens to have a really strong print program. Yeah, yeah. And I, but I didn't know that until I like figured out, you know, I mean, I, it, it helped, you know, like it was a destiny kind of, it felt like a little bit of a thing where I was like, oh, I love print. And I just happened to have been in an undergraduate program that had a really strong print program. Yeah. And so it was easy to sort of in the last like year of my, of college is when I started taking studio classes seriously. Wow. Did that tack on any extra time to your... It did. I took yeah. an extra semester of coursework and then I think I stayed an extra, I did like an independent study bit extra yeah. semester. So I stayed a full year after whatever the four years. Yeah. Um, do you miss California at all? Or are you now a like solid Pittsburgher? <laughs> I don't. I I miss the ocean. Yeah. And I miss um, being twenty. You know, like <laughs> yeah. mid twenties of California. But I grew up in the East Coast, and yeah. I was I I desperately missed parts of the East Coast in California, and I lived in California for almost a decade, and I. I don't feel the same way about California, I guess. Yeah. But I do miss, I miss like, you know, I, I miss being young in California when I had no money and I had less problems, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So yeah. I, I, I want to, it's like California has changed so much and the Bay Area has changed so much and everyone sort of talks about that. And I think about like what artists need to, to continue to make work if making work is the most sort of important thing it's like space and time and like there's just easier ways to make rent or make a, a living and there's interesting people there's definitely like a lot larger sort of diversity of people in Pittsburgh in terms of mm -hmm. like socioeconomic diversity in terms of a lot there's like huge groups of people that are missing from the California landscape you yeah. know um and in ages of people, right? Like there's there's both old and young people can live in the city, which does not it didn't feel that way in California. And yeah, it's so there's and and I'm always sort of interested in like I guess maybe I'm not always interested in like the shiny newest thing. So there's there's a lot architecturally about like older sort of historic cities um, that have been real fruitful. Yeah, you know. Like, you, have, you can't find an 80-year-old pencil sharpener in a, like, <laughs> $1.5 million, like, condo. Out of you know? San yeah. yeah, you just can't do that. Yeah, you got, you got to, to get a grandma pencil sharpener, you got to go to the grandma source. <laughs> and so Pittsburgh has been really generative <laughs> that way. It's really interesting because we have um, overlaps geographically. Like, mm -hmm. you're in Pittsburgh now. This is where I lived, like, 10 years ago, and... Pittsburgh like radically shaped who I am or like what I'm what I'm doing and while we were in Northern California I was in Southern California yeah. and when I was in Los Angeles so much of what you're describing now and what you found in Pittsburgh is so much of what I missed yeah when I was in California and like uh missing home yeah a little bit yeah and and then and then and then you're now teaching yeah. At George Mason, which is like very close to where I grew up. Yeah, so we're exactly. just like, we've flipped. <laughs> but like, I will say like a, maybe an example of all of this is like, I'm a lot closer to my childhood home. 
Yeah. Um, and I went home the other day and I noticed that my father who like collects, he just doesn't throw out things, you know, as many dads yeah. are. Um, and I found on the corner of his desk was like a collection of all of our childhood erasers that he hadn't thrown out for 30 years. Oh, wow. And, like, because they're still erasers, and he's like, erasers can be used. Like, who uses an eraser <laughs> to complete? Like, who? It's like the pencil shaving thing. It's like, name a time when you, very few, it's a very special person that can, like, keep and use a pencil till it's finished. Yeah. And my father, like, his kids are, like, all in their 30s to late 30s. <laughs> and he's kept our childhood erasers, which is, like, really amazing. Um, and so these erasers on his desk, like they had my handwriting on them because they were my childhood erasers. And I, yeah. uh, one of them I had written either like bad career eraser or sad career. You can't <laughs> tell cause it's been like erased and they were just so, it was like so amazing. So it's like, I took those and then I ended up making this like sculpture out of them. Like these copies of, the, they're called sad career erasers cause I don't yeah. remember. And there was like, um, I published that with the university of Minnesota, but it's also like a 14 layer screen print paper oh, sculpture. Wow. Um, and then it's like rubbed with graphite to make it look <laughs> old. And then I like, you know, brought the erasers back to my dad and I put them on his desk and, 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 how did, how did and he replaced it. He's, I mean, he 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 gets it because he like lives my art practice in his like person <laughs> deep like as is just his personality. And when I think about this project, I think about like like that this is this the reason that this exists is because my father is who my father is and he had a daughter like me. Yeah. You know, and that's the arc of the story. And now on his desk with all of the other things that he has is like paper copies of the erasers that he chose to keep. So it's just like, I, I like to think about like, yeah, uh, why something continues to exist, you know? And there's like, there's there's three, I think I think about like three main things. It's like one, it's like just so valuable and important. And we archive it and we collectively as a culture, like keep it and protect it. And then one, it's like, it's just forgotten, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like it is so useless that no one bothers to even remove it from the wall and we just like paint over it or, or whatever. And then the, th the third one is like, cause someone really loved it, you know? Yeah. And so they kept it and maybe it's like worth nothing or maybe it's because they're his kids erasers or whatever, <laughs> but it's like, you know, and so some of the objects, they all have different stories behind them. And so they, but they all kind of loosely are in these like three categories of like how you survive time. And then hopefully now that they are like in an art form, they might like live longer than that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really lovely. Said awesome. career races. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, I mean, um, thank you so much for spending the time in your studio and opening up the space to me and talking to me about all the all the objects in pickle jars and everything you've yeah. made. Um, it's just been also really wonderful to see your your practice over the course of so many years since we met back in California yeah. and to be able to bounce around ideas about education. So thanks for hanging out and spending the afternoon with yeah. me. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me to be on Paper Cuts. I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> You're also the one artist that we've had on here whose uh, practice probably lends itself the most to the title of Paper yeah. Cuts. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I do. Don't. So I don't get any Paper Cuts anymore because I like so many calluses, you know, yeah. except for 
in October of 20, like, this is amazing. I'm like, <laughs> name, I'm almost going to name dates. October 13th, 2016. Um, I was cutting some paper with the, the confidence and power of a person who's cut a lot of paper for uh -huh. many years. So much so that she owns a medical scalpel because it's like sharper. And I slipped and I cut my finger in half. This is like trigger warning for your yeah, listeners. Yeah. But I had to go to the emergency room and I had to get like 15 stitches to put my finger back in place. So I got like the paper cut of all paper cuts. Yeah. So much so that when I went into the emergency room, they had like, they were like, oh, so you're here for a paper cut? And I was like holding up my finger together. And I was like, no, I cut my finger cutting paper. Yeah. <laughs> so then that's how we'll we'll end this interview about paper cuts. So I, I, I don't get paper cuts except for that time I really yeah. got a paper cut. I feel like it's only appropriate that the cut that you had was like the most extreme version of what that could be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the new artist thing. Yeah. <laughs>